0: Raphael, and uh, I mean the the Renaissance painter, not the Ninja Turtle. And we have again a very cultured group, and I probably don't need to explain that. But Raphael, the Renaissance master, considered this painting that's on the screen and in your bulletin, considered that to be his masterpiece. It was this painting, even though he didn't finish it before he died. A student finished it later. This was the the painting that was displayed behind his casket at his funeral. It was his masterpiece. It is his depiction of the transfiguration of Christ. And it shows some real insight on his part as to what was going on. One thing, maybe the first thing you notice about this painting is most paintings are in like a landscape. Perspective and this one looks like he took the picture with his cell phone, you know, pointed this way instead of this way. It's very vertical. That's because really it's two paintings, two scenes in the same painting. Maybe if you look at the top of the painting, this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is the transfiguration, this is his depiction of the transfigured Christ. Here's Moses. With his tablets and Elijah with his mantle. Here's the three disciples who went up the mountaintop with Jesus who have fallen down in fear. But then, while that was going on on top of the mountain, if you scan down to the, to the bottom of the painting, we see what Jeff just read to us about. Here are nine disciples of Jesus who have been unable to heal a young man. So here's what's going on in this painting or in this scene from the Gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke. There's been this fabulous religious experience on the mountaintop. But down below, it's just like frustratingly real life. With failure and the crowd and frustration and ain't that the way life goes how many of us have had some sort of experience a mountaintop experience you've been somewhere you've been to some service you've gone through something where God just seems so real feels real like we know he always is real but there are Those times where maybe God has healed uh, someone or an illness or a relationship, or you have sat in in, in a conference or in church and you felt like God was speaking straight to me. And then you sort of go down the mountaintop, you go to work on Monday, and real life is there. And it's just as frustrating as it was last week. And the world is the same. And maybe you fail again. That's sort of what this passage is about. It's about how real life meets the Christian life in a we're not real careful that, you know, real life can suck all the warm fuzzies out of, our, out of our walk with the Lord. Right? Why do we fail to walk with the Lord in real life? Why, why do we fail at the stuff God wants us to do? That's what we want to talk about today, from this little passage, and as we study through it, where the the three handpicked disciples have gone up the mountain. Click me there, Seth. Would you? There we go. The three handpicked disciples have gone up the mountain. The transfiguration has happened, and when they come down the hill together, Peter, Jesus, James, and John. This is what they find. This has already been going on. They they walk down the mountain, and I want you to notice, before they get down there, a crowd has already assembled. Mark lets us know in his gospel, there were religious big shots in that crowd called scribes, the experts in the law, who've been arguing with the disciples. And I sort of see this in my mind's eye, they're coming down the mountain, I don't know how far it was, but they could, have, they could have seen this crowd for some time, not knowing what they are all doing there. And then we learn, it as they get close enough, a man comes out of that crowd, and he kneels down before Jesus, and asks Jesus for help. And this, this man has a, a son, who who's in pretty rough shape, and... The different translations of our Bibles tell us what's wrong with him in, in different ways. This translation says he has seizures. Jeff's translation said he had epilepsy. Maybe your translation says he was moonstruck. Anybody have that one? Some of The rest of them says, like the, the one that was on the screen earlier said he was a lunatic. Anybody have that one? The man said, my son is a lunatic. That's not a very nice thing to say about your son, is it? We've all thought it, we have, but we don't say it, especially not to Jesus. You know, here's why. Here's where those come from. Um, do you hear the moonstruck and lunatic? Are sort of the same thing. Do you hear the word lunar in the lunatic? Lunartic means to be moonstruck. Here's where that. It's it's seizures. Uh, the ancients, the first. Century near East, they thought somebody who had uh, recurrent seizures somehow that was caused by the moon, the way the moon affects the tides, and so that came to be called moonstruck or lunatic. Um, it wasn't mad, or crazy. It was it was seizures. So that's what this that's what this was, and, and this guy paints a picture briefly. Matthew tells us that like this kid, that the, that his seizures come on so suddenly. And like he could be walking through uh, where there are open fires, of which there were many more in that day and age than there are today, where they didn't have kitchens with ovens that we have. Where he falls into an open pool or a cistern or something. That's happened. He says, I see he's going to die. And they ask for help. And then in verse 16, we learn that the nine downhill disciples have been unable to heal this young man. He says, I I, I probably came to see Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. I asked your disciples, and they gave it their best shot. And they, uh, they couldn't heal this young man. Now, it might be tempting to read that. You know, I brought my son to your disciples, but they were not able to heal him. It might be tempting for us to read that and go, well, yeah, that sounds about right. I couldn't have healed him either. Um, only Jesus can do that sort of thing. But if that's your reaction, we're missing, we're missing a point here. Because back in chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, in chapter 10 we read this, chapter 10 verse 1 of the book of Matthew. Jesus called his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So that they could cast them out and heal every kind of disease and sickness. We learn later that this young man, is a supernatural reason for his illness, cause of his illness. But whether it is or whether it isn't, Jesus has given his disciples authority to heal people like this. And they failed. They failed at something Jesus has sent them out to do. And we can tell that Jesus is disappointed by the way he reacts. We we can hear Jesus' frustration, his exasperation. In verse 17, when he answers, You unbelieving and perverse generation, How much longer must I be with you? You? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him here to me. By the way, I use this picture. Uh, if, uh, if the History Channel ever does something that appears to be like a documentary on Jesus, like being extremely skeptical, I use this. They published a book about Jesus, and I just think it's hilarious when they, they decide to do a uh, book about Jesus, and the picture they choose is like disappointed Jesus. And so they look disappointed. And it's like, oh, man. wah. This is sad trombones, Jesus. And I think that's what he felt about the disciples. He expected, he disappointed that they weren't able to do what he's asked them to do. And he calls them, or he, he talks to them as if they're part of this generation. Jesus has talked about this generation. That's like a nickname for prevalent society. Jesus calls it this generation. He's He's talked about this generation already in the book of Matthew. He will do it again. And if you pay attention, every time in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about this generation, it's never good. And it's not good here either. He calls them them an unbelieving and a perverse generation. That's not a compliment in case you had not picked up on that. Unbelieving, not good. Perverse just means to be turned away from what's right. And he asks this rhetorical question about this generation. He says, how long do I got to put up with you? Like how long do I have to be around you? That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Do you know there's an answer to that question? Do you know there is there is coming a day, even though God, patient as he is, how he puts up with us, he forbears our sin. A day is coming when the unbelieving and perverse people of the world he will not put up with anymore. He will cast them away from his presence forever. Now praise God the believing and perverse generation get to stay with it. Because we're all turning away from what is right. So there's there's coming a day when God's patience will run out. And He'll call it a wrap on this world. And He will no longer put up with the wicked and perverse people of the world. Now what's striking here, though, is that Jesus is lumping nine of his disciples into this wicked and unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, what's he mean by that? Don't draw too many conclusions too quickly. Jesus liked to use uh, exaggeration, hyperbole, exaggerated language to prove a point. A chapter ago, he called Peter... What did he call Peter. He called him Satan. Was Peter literally Satan? No. But Jesus called him Satan as if to say, you sound more like Satan than you sound like me. You sound like his spokesman more than you sound like mine. Jesus called Peter Satan to prove a point. He's doing it again with his disciples. What he's saying is, you guys are acting and sounding more like this unbelieving and perverse generation than you are acting like mine followers should and sound. And boy, isn't that still so a struggle. It is always, always, always a struggle for us as individual Christians and as the church corporately that we get to be a little more and a little more and a little more like the rest of the world than we are getting a little more and a little isn't that true? This has never stopped being a problem. Again, don't don't take Jesus too literally here. I know in, in today's passage he said, "How much longer do I have to be with you? How much longer do I do I have to endure you?" But these same guys are going to get this promise at the end of this book. Remember, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's that's our promise. But Jesus does, does want them to know, you sound more like the world. You're acting more like the world than you're acting. There are things that we should not have in common with the rest of the world. But sometimes we do. And then in verse 18, Jesus does immediately what the disciples failed to do. You know, he cast this demon out, and this this young fellow is, is healed immediately and uh, you know permanently from that malady. We have to believe. All right, and when that happens, the disciples, these nine downhill disciples, then ask Jesus the question that sort of controls this passage. It's, it's the big question. They ask him, "Why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we?" cast it out. And before we get to Jesus' answer, because that's sort of like the main part of this passage. Why did the disciples fail at something they should have been able to do? I want you to notice something. The disciples believed they could do this. They'd done it before. In chapter 10, Jesus sent the disciples out, gave them authority over a uh, the forces of darkness and disease and they went out and they healed and they cast out demons. They've done this before. They thought they could do it on this day and they're surprised when it doesn't work. The question is why? And Jesus lets them know in verse 20 that their problem is a faith problem. It reads this way. Jesus tells us, they say, why couldn't And Jesus tells them, it's because of your little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, hey mountain, stop being there, go over there, the mountain will do it. Nothing will be impossible for you. So their problem, the reason they couldn't cast this demon out, couldn't heal this young man, it wasn't because that demon was too powerful. It wasn't because the disease was incurable. It wasn't because they used the wrong technique. It was a faith problem. But don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The problem is, Jesus is not saying that if they only had more of the faith they were using to heal this kid, the kid would have been healed. (coughs) He does not say If you had a larger amount of the same faith, this would have worked. He says something really interesting. He does tell them that the littleness, the smallness of their faith is a problem. But look at what he says The problem with your faith, you have a little faith. That's the problem. But what's the solution? Big faith? Before we go on, is a mustard seed big or small? Oh, it's small. Okay, so apparently the bigness of the faith is not going to be the solution. Because he says that your problem is you've got this little faith. Here's your solution. You need faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, isn't that unusual? You see the paradox here? Your problem is you got a little faith. You know what you need? You need a little faith. Your little faith needs a little faith. And then we wouldn't be in this situation. So the problem is not. If you just believed harder that you could do this, you could have done that. You know why you didn't heal that young? Because you had doubts, and you didn't have a big enough faith. No, the problem is you had some sort of little weak faith that apparently is the wrong faith, because the right faith is also a little faith. The only way a little faith can be the problem, and a little faith can be the solution, is if they're somehow different faiths. Because the quantity is similar. In fact, I know that the disciples had a larger amount of faith they were using. They were just using their own faith. They were using faith in faith. Belief in belief. If I believe hard enough, I can do this. Nope. They believe hard enough. They, they, maybe they wish upon a star. They hold their breath and blow out the candles. The object of our faith is way more important than the amount of our faith. I don't care how much faith someone has. If it's not in the right object, it's little, it's weak, it's powerless. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you have faith in the wrong thing. They had a little faith. Powerless faith. Weak faith. And if they had faith in the right object, which is Jesus, even a little dab will do you. Alright, Jesus has told his disciples here that they have two problems. They're using the wrong kind of faith and somehow they are like the rest of the world, this unbelieving and perverse generation. You sound more like the world than you sound like me. So if I could kind of boil that down and take my best shot at what their problem is, <laughs> here's what I would say. say it is. First, I believe they're like the rest of the world and that they, on the bottom of that hill, were interested in self-promotion. Here's how I think this went down. This is the way I see this in my mind's eye. They're down on the bottom of this hill, and first of all, they already feel a little bit left out. Why? Because Jesus handpicked three disciples that got to go on the Transfiguration field trip with Jesus to the top of the mountain, and they didn't get picked to go. Then, this crowd assembles, and there's religious big shots in that crowd. The scribes and the people in the crowd think the scribes are religious big shots, and I think they really wanted to heal this young man, but probably so that people would would think that once we heal this guy, then people will think we're really something. We'll be elite. We'll be big shots. We'll be significant. We'll be impressive. They, they've missed. We go to the book of Luke. When Luke tells the story of Jesus sending the disciples out and letting them heal and give them the authority over unclean spirits, and they come back and they say, Jesus, you should have seen it out there. Even the, even the demons listened to us when we were healing diseases, and Jesus said something like, this is Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, Do not rejoice that the demons obeyed you guys. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Make sure. The impressive thing is the right impressive thing. Make sure what you rejoice about is the right thing to rejoice about. So I think they're like the rest of the world in that they want to be impressive. They want other people to think they're something. And then again, as far as the miracle goes, I think their faith is in their ability to do this. I think we see it in the question they ask. Did they ask... Hey, Jesus, why didn't God do this through us? No, he said, why couldn't we do this? We wanted to do this. We thought we could, and we thought it would have been awesome had we pulled it out. Why couldn't we do it? Faith that I can do something is the wrong kind of faith. The disciples have forgotten Jesus' boot camp. It's been a while since we've been on Jesus' boot camp in the book of Matthew. But Jesus' boot camp was all about this. Jesus showing, teaching his disciples, If you stick with me, I will lead you to do stuff that's impossible. Not stuff you think you can do. Things you think you can do. If you do them by faith. You'll accomplish some light. You're out. There's a crowd of tens of thousands of people. And Jesus says, Say guys, why don't you give them something to eat? You're like, we can't do that. Jesus says exactly. You can't. You just believe I can and do what I want you to do. And nothing will be impossible for you. So their problem is a faith problem. Their solution is a faith solution. The reason that our faith is a powerful faith is because of the object of our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. The object is more important than the amount. But don't get it twisted here. Another reason why Jesus is the solution is a mustard seed-sized faith. If you do the right thing with a mustard seed, what will it do? It will grow and grow and grow. It should be a growing faith. But it has to be in the right thing. It has to be in Jesus. That's not how the world's faith works. Now this verse, it's misunderstood and misused at all. Okay? I tell you the truth, Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what will happen? You'll be able to move mountains and nothing will be impossible for you. Here's what that can sound like. It can sound like, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, I can do whatever I want. Right? It can't mean that, though, because the whole reason this conversation comes up is because the disciples just failed at exactly what I just described. The disciples believe in Jesus, they just wanted to heal this kid and failed. So, whatever this means, it can't mean if I believe in Jesus, I can do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. It just can't. It's the reason for the conversation. So, what's this mean? Well, we have the right kind of faith in the right object. If our faith is in Jesus, we will follow Jesus. If we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, our Creator. Who would give himself up for us. That will grow in us. The desire to follow him. And here's the way this verse works its way out. If you have faith in me. That starts out the size of a mustard seed. You will begin to follow me. Has Jesus told us what it means to follow him? He said, anybody who wants to come after me, wants to be my follower, will do two things. What are they? Somebody tell me the first one. Anybody who wants to come after me will deny himself and carry his cross. So if I have faith the size of a mustard seed in Jesus and that begins to grow and I begin to follow Him, that means I deny myself, which means I deny myself the right to call the own shot, call my own shots and put my desires first. I hand those things over to the one I'm following. And then I'm willing to bear my cross, whatever shame and opposition comes, because I have given my right to call the shots over to my Lord Jesus. when I live like that, I will be able to do whatever I want. But, if I'm doing that, what will I want? I will want to do what He wants me to do. Because I've given over my desires and the shot-calling authority to my Lord. And then I will be able to do anything, even if it's impossible, that's what He wants me to do. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news for this morning. You know what Jesus wants you to do sometimes? Fail gracefully. He wants you to be sick faithfully. He wants you to leave this earth and die joyfully even though it may not be happily. And to the rest of the world, do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like it's impossible. Which is exactly what he said we'll be able to do. I know he uses moving mountains as the, again, hyperbole, the hyperbolic example of what's impossible, but Jesus never even moved mountains. Not because he couldn't, because it wouldn't bring glory to the Father. Verse 21, the last verse in our passage here, if your Bible has it. Anybody's Bible not have this one? Here's why. Uh, here's why this is in brackets, and I think this is the New American Standard. If you read anything besides the Old King James, you've got at least a footnote that says this is not in the Greek text. Uh, here's why. Matthew didn't write this. Oh, this, is this is not original to Matthew. If you follow the, the, the manuscript trail earlier and earlier and earlier, it'll get to a point where this one doesn't show up. Uh, what happened is a scribe wanted to be helpful, and added this to make it agree with Mark. Now, so can we, can we just throw this out and not talk about it? I mean, we could, and Matthew had a reason for omitting it. But this is in Mark. This is biblical. It's not like, no matter what you read on Facebook, it's not like the, the editors of newer Bibles like, hate the Bible and hate the Gospels and take things out of the Bible to hide it. If that's true, they're doing a terrible job of hiding from you because it's in Mark in those same Bibles. Okay, it's in there. So we know Jesus said this. He told his disciples that day, why couldn't we do this? He tells them, you have the wrong kind of faith. you using a small faith. You sound more like the rest of the world. You're interested in self-promotion. And then he says, an obstacle like this doesn't go away without prayer. And by the way, the fasting part really shouldn't be in there, but that's a story for a different day. This is not about technique, though. Jesus is not saying, you just had the wrong technique. If you'd have come and, and right before you tried heal him. if you just said the magic words and prayed just right, then you could have done this. No. But you know what prayer does? Prayer. Is where I go before my Lord and make sure my heart matches his. And had the disciples done that, honestly, maybe the Lord would have allowed them to understand I want to heal this guy for the wrong reasons. I'm going about this with the wrong motives. I want to heal the I want to be the big shot here. I want to be noticed. I want attention. That's what prayer it is. Prayer is in many ways the battery pack, the, the, the power source for the Christian. It's really hard to maintain a good prayer life. Can I get an amen? You know why it's hard? You know why a consistently good prayer life is hard? I'm just going to tell you this for me. Here's where I get stuck in my prayer life. Confession time. Because I'm busy. Because i got stuff I need to be doing. And if I would really dig into my heart, I think I would admit this. The stuff I need to do today, I can do without praying. The stuff I need to get done today, I can do without praying. You know what? A lot of times that's true. But guess what that stuff on my list will be? Stuff I know I can accomplish. And what did Jesus just say we can do if we have faith in science and must receive? Impossible stuff that we don't think we can accomplish. See, so here's what starts happening when I stop praying. I start spending all of stuff I know I can do and I begin to neglect the impossible stuff he sent me here to do. Stuff only he can do. He can change lives. He can win souls. He can heal relationships and heal people. And when I was stay connected to him in prayer, I will spend all my time doing stuff I know I can do in the great and wonderful power of how ridiculous does that sound? It should We begin to lower the bar on what we're doing with our life. So for this passage, why did the disciples fail at something Jesus wanted them to do? Can you answer that question? You know why they failed? Because they had belief in their own abilities, and they were acting more like the rest of the world than they were acting like followers of Jesus. And they weren't praying. which was both a cause and a symptom of the problem. Next question. Why do you not fail at the stuff Jesus has for us to do? Let's say an same same an answer. We begin to have belief in our own abilities. We begin to desire self-promotion. Promotion of us or promotion of men. We want people to be impressed with us instead of being impressed with Jesus Christ. And we stop praying somewhere in our hearts we know, I can do the stuff that I can do. And then Jesus says, how long do I have of you. You sound just like the rest of the world. You sound like the people I'm going to cast away from my presence, Maxwell. Instead of sounding like somebody who's got a mustard seed of growing faith that's handed the reins over others. our gracious, patient, loving Heavenly Father. God, you have preserved this passage and presented this message to us not to beat us down and make us feel lousy about where we are at spiritually. You give us this because you love us and you want us to walk with you because it's best for us. God, convict us where we need convicted here. Show us how we're like the the, the unbelieving and perverse generation around us. Show us where we desire self-promotion instead of desiring to glorify you.
1: God, maybe it's been a long time
0: since some of us have sat down and prayed when we weren't in church. Remind us tomorrow morning, Lord, to hit our knees. And even if we have to pray, God, it's been way too long. And I don't even know what to say. But help us start a prayer with you like that tomorrow. That we might get our hearts rooted back in our faith in Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord that we have the promise that you will be with us always. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we may struggle to follow at times, but you will never cast us away, even when we act like those that you will. We love you, Lord. Glorify yourself in us. Help us get back to the impossible tasks that you have for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.